0: All right, everybody, uh, I hope you are doing well this week and tonight. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy and then your New Testament. 2 Timothy comes just before Titus, Philemon, and Hebrews, 2 Timothy. As you are turning there, a couple reasons why we pick 2 Timothy number one, it's short. That's, that always helps. We weren't going to do a 40-chapter book right now at the end of the summer, but we've got uh, four chapters here in Second Timothy. This is also, as you probably know, the Apostle Paul's very last letter before his death by execution, almost certainly under Nero in the mid-60s A.D. And so, this is really, people have called it Paul's last will and testament, his sort of last uh, statement to uh, Timothy, and so I just even as you get a chance to read this over the next few weeks, it, it is a moving letter because you really are reading a human being on the verge of death, and entering the kingdom of heaven, who knows his time is running short, writing to his uh, disciple Timothy, his protege in a sense, and uh, you get to hear the passions of Paul's heart spilling over in this letter. You get to hear what what is Paul. Uh, this is something I challenge you to do as you read this. Sit down with Second Timothy and just say, what is Paul? What's on his mind repeatedly in his last letter? What is he repeating? What's he emphasizing? What is he drawing the most attention to? What are the kind of words and phrases he is most intense on focusing Timothy and our minds on? And you get to see what's at the, at the center of Paul's heart and life. And uh, it won't surprise you some of those things that we will be uncovering as we go through this letter. But it, it is a moving, passionate plea to Timothy. So th- think about this. Paul's saying, okay, I'm about to depart. I've finished my course, I'm about to depart. And Paul knows the gospel is being left in the hands of people like Timothy, and so he is as urgent as possible to help and warn and encourage Timothy to be ready to take the baton, really, of the gospel, as Paul goes on for for Timothy and others, Titus and others, to be able to take that and to pass it on to other men who can teach others also. So, uh, Greg, can you give us a few introductory words? We probably need to pray, too. Yeah, why don't we pray, and then we can do that, yeah. Now, would you pray for us, and then, Greg, you can open us up. Sure.
1: Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, for this time to gather here and just to fellowship with other believers, uh, to be able to uh, have this food and to eat food and to fellowship over the food, and now we get to open your Word. What a privilege it is to be able to do this uh, with your people. And Father, as we come to this uh, wonderful opening uh, chapter, to this wonderful letter, I I pray that you would help us to be attentive to your Word, and I pray that you'd help us to apply your word uh, to our lives, uh, that we would be bold uh, and unashamed of uh, the gospel, and uh, we would do that relying upon your grace by the Holy Spirit, Uh, and I just pray that uh, you would open our eyes, that we would behold wondrous things from this chapter because they are in this chapter, and I pray that we would be transformed uh, by this chapter, by your word, and uh, give us wisdom as we teach, help us to be faithful to your word as Greg, Mark, and I teach from your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
2: All right. Um, starting off, you know, Mark kind of already gave a decent introduction to this. Uh, some things I'm going to mention are very obvious, uh, but teaching high school, I find sometimes the obvious things are the things that are often missed. Um, so, again, obviously, this is a letter from Paul to Timothy. Um, we know about Paul. Uh, we don't have to go over his background. We've been dealing with that enough in in Acts. We know about his life before Christ, his conversion to Christ, uh, his ministry as an apostle. I mean, we've been seeing, you know, how Barnabas affirmed him. He was a teacher in Antioch. He was commissioned by the church in Antioch. He had three missionary journeys. He planted, established, and established a number of churches. Uh, Paul suffered greatly for the gospel, and that's actually going to come big time into play as we look through 2 Timothy, uh, his suffering for Christ. Uh, he fought hard for the integrity of the gospel. I mean, man, you cannot read anything from the apostle Paul and and somehow miss that The keeping the gospel as the gospel is and not changing the gospel, not diluting the gospel in any way is huge for the Apostle Paul. He wrote a bunch of letters and as we'll see here, we know he is going to be executed uh, for his unflinching gospel witness. But a few things about Timothy, uh, things you may already know, but if you've never studied this before and you're not familiar with Timothy, maybe this will be helpful just to give a little background. uh, He was of a mixed heritage. He had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. Uh, You see that in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, which we won't turn to. As we'll see in this book, his uh, mother and his grandmother both came to faith in Christ. Um, What's his connection to the apostle Paul? Well, he was a disciple and a personal traveling companion of Paul. Uh, You can, you know, Paul mentions that here. Uh, You see Acts chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, and chapter 20. Timothy is with Paul in Paul's ministry. Uh, He was with Paul in his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, mentioned Philippians 1, Colossians 1, Philemon 1. Um, and he received his spiritual gift uh, from Paul through the laying on of Paul's hands. In terms of like Timothy's ministry, again, some of this we're going to pick up on in this letter specifically, uh, he was a steward of the gospel itself. Uh, Paul commends him to that. Uh, he had received some kind of special prophetic anointing for ministry. Uh, and he was especially appointed by Paul to minister and oversee in various churches and situations. So, you know, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are called the pastoral epistles because they deal with a lot of issues in the church that leadership in the church has to deal with. Timothy it it may or may not have actually been a pastor or an elder, more kind of like a special delegate uh, who was like ministering on behalf of Paul so that the local leadership and the local churches could be, what they need to be. Obviously, again, as Mark said, Paul is about to die, so that's kind of the occasion, you know, his last will and testament. Uh, there's four, kind of, if you want to say four purposes, you could go more than this for sure, uh, but four things to kind of keep in mind what, what is going on in 2 Timothy? What is Paul aiming at? You um, know, if you want to write these down, that's great. Uh, number one, One purpose of this this letter is that we remain faithful to the gospel. You know, obviously to Timothy, but also this was intended for the churches to read as well. It's not just Timothy to the exclusion of everyone else. So remain faithful to the gospel. Number two, train the next generation of church leadership. Number three, prepare for difficulty and suffering for the gospel. Prepare for difficulty and suffering for the gospel. Um, And number four, proclaim the word of God without fail. Um, and again, there's more we could say, and you know, than that probably. But um, again, mid-sixties, uh, Timothy is in the church at Ephesus, and just you know, you may or may not know anything about Ephesus, but that city was famous for its its uh, worship. It had a huge temple dedicated to the Greek god Artemis. Um, Acts chapter 19, which we'll get to um, not too long from now, we'll encounter that. But it was a center of pagan worship, and so it was a challenge for Christian ministry um, here in the early church. Okay, that's some intro. What, where do we want to go from there?
0: Well, that's fantastic. And just, just to kind of pick up with that, so if you remember, we did Philippians a few, maybe a year ago in our church. Philippians takes place just after the very end, of, or right at the end of the book of Acts, which we haven't gotten to yet in this series. So just remember, Paul ends up, remember, under house arrest in Rome, like Greg mentioned, he's there for, it's a total of four years, but at the end in Rome, he's there for two years. He writes some of those letters, and then he is released. Paul thought he would be released in Philippians 1, and he was released according to church history, and Paul is released. He travels around with uh, Timothy and Titus, and then he ends up somehow being uh, re-arrested and sent back to Rome. This time, if you know, this is in the mid-60s AD when Nero had gone from being a more tame and to being becoming the famous Nero, the, the egomaniac, demented Nero who was just, you know, he would kill a Christian and put him on a pitchfork, basically, and used their burning dead body to light up his feast at night, and he would dress up as an animal and go around biting people at his feet. I mean, he, just, he was crazy. But Nero started becoming increasingly crazy at this time. So, now when Paul is facing Nero this time, he knows it is not looking good. In fact, he knows for sure he's not going to make it out alive. So, this time, he is not in, under house arrest at the end of Acts, where he's, he's able to rent a home. He's chained to a guard, but he still has some freedom. Uh, here now, he's in a horrible prison cell. Church history tells us it's something called the Mamertine Prison in Rome, which is basically a subterranean there's a hole in the ground. You open a hole, and you drop down, and there's, you can barely stand. It's just a, like a, a tomb for the, for, the, for the living. And you go down there, and Paul would have spent perhaps in that very spot, which you can visit today, uh, writing these last letters and, and, and really getting ready for facing his death. And he was going to get ready for a cold winter, so he actually asked Timothy to bring his cloak. I mean, it's very human, very physical, very real, what, what Paul was facing uh, as he, as he uh, is, is coming into this.
1: Yeah. Should we read some?
0: Are yeah. Getting here? How, how many verses do you think? We can go ahead and do the first. Uh, what do you think? Twelve to fourteen. Fourteen.
1: Okay. Second uh, Timothy chapter one, starting in verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord "'Nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel "'by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, "'not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, "'which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, "'and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, "'who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, "'for which I was appointed a preacher.'" An apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. <clears throat> so I would just say, like Mark already said, he's probably in the Mamertine prison. It's just important to Keep that in the back of your minds. It, it makes this even more powerful, I feel like, this, this letter at multiple parts. Alistair Begg said, you know, he's not on a cruise ship. He wasn't on a cruise ship just having the time of his life. No, he's in this You can look it up online. I looked it up this week. It's like a hole in the ground. That's where he was. Uh, and just, I want to jump into this very first verse that's been powerful to reflect on. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So here he is in Rome. He is awaiting, as one pastor said, the arraignment of sentencing. It's a sentencing in which he will hear the death penalty pronounced upon him. They will take him out after that sentencing, and they're going to execute Paul. They're going to, you know, chop his head off, as tradition tells us. But thinking about death, facing death, imminent death, what is he thinking about? He's thinking about the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. You see, death is a terrible foe. Said one commentator, An unjust execution is especially pernicious, especially evil. But for Paul, the promise of life resolves the problem of death. For Jesus has abolished death. He's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, as we just read. So Paul is applying the gospel to himself. And we should do the same. That's just a lesson right out of the gate. Paul's applying the gospel to himself as he faces death. You see, the gospel is good news for dying sinners. That God has promised us life In Jesus, John Stott says it seems particularly appropriate that as death stares the apostle in the face, he should here define it as a promise of life. For that is what it is. The gospel offers men life, true life, eternal life, both here and hereafter. So just right out of the gate, there's a powerful opening verse. As Paul stares death in the face, he's thinking about the life we have in Christ Jesus. We're just moving right from the get-go.
0: Yeah, a question we can keep asking ourselves, just reading any part of the Bible, but especially this book, you know, why would Paul say the phrases that he says. I mean, in the introduction, you could say anything, and in, in each letter is unique. The, the introductions oftentimes vary, they're different. But as he faces death, it's amazing that he brings out the promise of life in the introduction. So even as we study this, just think, why is Paul bringing this up right now, whatever it may be? Why does Paul say this? Why does he say it the way he says it? Why is the wording the way it is? Because all of that factors into who he is, where he is, what he's facing, and who he's writing to. All those things factor into to how, he, how he writes, uh, what, what he's about to do. And as Scott mentioned, you know, it, he was beheaded. You may hear Peter is crucified upside down. Paul had Roman citizenship, which would have prevented him in almost any instance from being crucified, but beheading is what he would have faced, whereas others who did not have Roman citizenship could have been more likely to be, to be crucified in, a, in that horrible and shameful way.
2: Yeah, think about um, this promise of life, um, just expanding on what's already been said. Uh, a couple of things in terms of the security of it, um, and you think about how do you know if you're a believer that this is a a promise that God will keep, a promise that you can bank your hope on um, today and tomorrow and when the unexpected disaster comes. Um, It's two things, or three things actually. It's a promise sealed um, by the life of Christ. You know, you think it's promise of life, the the perfect life of Jesus. God had a requirement of perfect obedience. Jesus met that for us. Um, God had a requirement of death as the penalty of sin. Guess what? Jesus met that requirement too It's um, a promise that's sealed by his resurrection. I mean, you think about it. He lived the life we should have lived Died the death we deserve to die. Both of those get credited to us. Then he rises from the dead, never to die again, so that through faith in him, that unbreakable eternal life that he now has, because, you know, Paul says Christ, having died, will never die again. So when we believe in him, we benefit from his work. We start to live by his life, and he did all that for us. And we say, by the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, recognize that if you've put your faith in Jesus, that promise is absolutely sure. There's nothing that can break it. There's nothing that can undo it. There's nothing that can weaken it because everything has been done by Jesus and his work is perfect. It's been accepted. Um, Other places were held by him, were held by the father. So this is a, a promise that you can bank everything on. So keep that in mind. Uh, When suffering comes, the life that God says you have now, the life that he's going to give you, it's real and you will get it.
0: Just to think here, you know, People listen to podcasts with celebrity interviews. People will go online and watch celebrities talk about all kinds of things. Uh, you look at the rich and the famous and all these different things that are all over the place. What you will find if you listen to any of those interviews is you will find all kinds of things talked about, things that probably often shouldn't be talked about. You'll hear all kinds of things talked about. What you will not hear talked about is how to prepare to face death. That won't be talked about. I don't care how rich or how famous someone is, everyone has to actually face their own mortality. and as Culturally, this is, I've heard someone say this may be the last taboo in our culture, you know. Everything else is, you know, we, we can talk about anything in our culture. People won't blush at anything, but you bring up the topic of mortality, and people want to turn the conversation to something else because we can't face it. We can't think about it. We can't be alone for 30 seconds in an elevator without our phone to distract us from the from just being stuck thinking about something that uh, un- unstoppable in front of us. And so, if we want answers to questions that are of most importance to our life, the most important. Thing is, not how to make a bunch of money, it's not how to be successful, it's not how to have a great job or career, it's not how to have a great marriage. I mean, those things may matter in some regard, but what really matters is how we live in such a way that we can face death with a clear conscience, with confidence in God, and with joy in the resurrection of Jesus. What what, show me where in the world you can get something that invaluable? I don't care how much money you have, do you know how to face death? And here this letter is invaluable because this letter is showing the greatest Christian who ever lived, the Apostle Paul, showing us, discipling us, discipling Timothy, how we ourselves can face our immortality and can face it with confidence, can face it with joy, can face it with no sense of despair. And so, you'll read sometimes non-Christians on their deathbeds and things that are said, and it's depressing and horrifying. And here Paul is saying, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept my faith. The, the crown of righteousness is in store for me and for all who love Christ's appearing. So as we read this, let's think about how this is a discipleship manual on how to prepare for entering eternity.
1: Should we keep going? Or... Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll just read verses 2 and 3. Y'all may... Oh, I'll just read 2 and 3. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. And maybe you guys can talk about verse 2 here in a minute. But I would just, verse 3 has struck me. I love verse 3. He, he's thanking God whom he serves. He remembers Timothy constantly in his prayers, night and day. And again, he, he's in a dungeon, as, as Beg would say. Again, he's not on a cruise ship. He's in a dungeon. And yet, he is praying with thanksgiving. I think that strikes me. I mean, Paul is practicing what he preached to me, multiple scenarios here. He's, he said in Romans 12, be constant in prayer. Here he is in a dungeon, and the throne of grace is open no matter where we are, and here he is praying at the throne of grace. He's thanking God. He's remembering Timothy constantly in his prayers night and day. He's being constant in prayer. He's living in a spirit of prayer, even though he's in a dungeon. He has a other-centeredness about him. Philippians 2, you know, consider others more significant than yourselves. He doesn't start talking about himself, right? He's praying about Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy right out of the gate, but he's praying with thanksgiving. Again, he's in this dungeon, and yet he is praying a prayer of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in our prayers should never be out of season. I I think I'm borrowing that from somebody, but... Thanksgiving should never be out of season in our prayers. There's always something to be thankful for, but he is specifically thankful for Timothy. He's remembering Timothy and his prayers constantly night and day, and I just think we should follow the Apostle Paul and pray constantly, but we should follow the Apostle Paul and pray with thanksgiving for other believers. I mean, this should be easy for us as Christians, that we should be praying regularly with thanksgiving for other believers. When, we, when their names pop into our heads, we should just be able to pray with thanksgiving for them. I think about you come to a night like tonight. And if you just come in and you eat and you sit down, you know that lots of things have happened to make this run efficiently. People have served us. And you think about the food. Wes and Holly have done all all these work week in and week out. When you think of Wes and Holly's names, even tonight... Just give thanks to God for them. They serve selflessly in our church. It should be easy to give thanks to God for the people in our church. I think Ian is up there and all the stuff he does, he's running around here all the time. He's getting everything ready. And he, you think about Ian and Aaron, you should give thanks to God for them for the ways they serve our church. And you go on and on. It should be easy for us to, to give thanks for others. And I think what an encouragement this must have been for Timothy. I can just see him repeating, reading that on repeat, verse three, just thinking, wow, Paul is praying for me. I mean, the, the encouragement we can give to others by telling them that we're praying for them and telling them specific reasons why we are thankful to God for them. I just think it will have powerful encouragement in our church and such an easy way to encourage
2: others. Yeah, wow, good stuff, man. Um, I want to go back to verse two real quick and kind of in, in light of encouraging um, and also you know, what we need to hear from others, what we need to know God um, and his intention toward us. He says, grace, mercy, and peace uh, from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We know what grace is. I uh, hope we do. It's undeserved, unearned favor from God. Um, there's another way that we understand grace that we'll look at in chapter 2. But I want to focus on that word mercy. Because um, again, that the idea of mercy is going to come into play throughout the whole of this letter. Um, you know, a lot of times we might think of mercy, you know, you might have heard this phrase before. You know, grace is uh, getting what, what's on them? You got grace, mercy, and justice. Justice is getting what you deserve Um, Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And I've I've heard that before. uh, But when you actually dig into what the term mercy means, that's not the best definition for mercy. Mercy actually um, refers to help given to helpless people. You think of mercy ministries. It's, you don't go out to, to help people in need and say, well, I'm not giving what you deserve, giving you what you deserve. You're helping them. Uh, mercy, in that sense, assumes the need of the one receiving it and assumes the ability to meet that need on the one giving it. So when we think of God being merciful, um, think about 2 Timothy. Timothy is in difficult situations. He's going to face suffering. Um, and when we face suffering, when we face hard times, you know, we will quickly discover that we don't personally have the resources to bear up under that. We just don't have the strength. We don't have the endurance. We don't have the mental strength. We don't have the resources that we need, but God does. God has everything we need to endure whatever situations we go through. So when we think of asking for mercy, think about this. God has infinite divine resources at his disposal to share with us in whatever situation we face. Now, that's not necessarily earthly things, earthly props like money or health or, or you know stuff like that, but internal things, strength to continue trusting him. Because what's more important, that you, you have it more comfortably materially or physically or that your faith stays strong and you don't turn away from God. So God has infinite resources for us so that when we face struggling in life, difficulty, persecution, whatever it may be, God has what we need. You know, it's, it's really cliched. You've heard the phrase, you know, God's not going to give you more than you can handle. No, he'll never give you more than he can handle. Okay. It's, it might be, you know, we don't want to groan too much, but that's true. He'll never give you more than he can handle. Okay, So keep that in mind. No matter what you're going through, God will take you to the end of yourself, but he will never take you beyond his capacity to hold you up. So when we think of God, be merciful, just think this cry, God, I'm helpless, please come help. Okay? Mercy is a big thing, and I think that kind of overshadows a lot of what's going on here.
0: Can you hold your spot in 2 Timothy? Go to a few books to the left, to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, as you are turning to Philippians chapter 2, just a couple other things here, jumping off Greg's comment about God's infinite resources. We, we need to talk a little bit more about Timothy. So, Timothy, I, I guess people call him sort of timid Timothy. You know, you, you've got this idea. Timothy was more in the timid category, unlike the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, was an intense character to be around. I mean, we will talk about him the next couple Sundays. You're going to see he's an intense guy. Uh, he and Barnabas have a little… Have a little disagreement this Sunday in the sermon, which is going to be interesting. So uh, you you see, Paul is an intense guy. And so Paul is driven and he is determined and he doesn't really seem to be too afraid of anybody. He's definitely trust the Lord, but he is an intense figure. Timothy is not like Paul in his personality. Timothy was a wonderful Christian young man, but he was not at all like Paul's uh, sort of bulldog and sort of personality. Timothy was much more struggling. I mean, I feel like Timothy I can relate to more than I can relate to Paul. Okay. So I look at Timothy, I go, okay, Here's, here's a younger guy, uh, maybe a late teenager, we're guessing here, when he's converted and he gets to, he gets to be with Paul in Acts 16. Uh, he doesn't have a believing father. His father's a Gentile. His mother is a believer. That'll be two Sundays from now, I believe, in, in the sermon. And so Timothy grows up without a believing dad. His dad may have actually passed away by the time that Paul meets him. Uh, and so he's got a believing mother and grandmother. That's all he has. And Timothy is more commentators have sort of guessed this is psychologizing, but he may have been more of an introvert by modern standards. Uh, He was less like Paul was in many ways. So, Timothy's temptation, maybe like ours, is to let the flame of his passion maybe cool off a little bit, to not confront false teaching like he needs to, because that's, really hard to do, and he doesn't want to maybe be as forthright as he should be. He has a wonderful heart for the Lord, but Paul is always sort of pushing him to go a little more, a little further. Come on, Timothy, fan into flame the gift. So, here's a wonderful description of Timothy's character in Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered of news of you, for I have no one like him. Paul says, I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how? As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So, you can can see here already, and you'll see it. We can flip back to 2 Timothy. Paul knew Timothy did not have a believing father. So, what was Paul? he was Timothy's dad. You are my son. He just said, I am your father. And and look here back at 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2. Who is he addressing this to? To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, And let me just read further. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors… With a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So, the whole letter, maybe I'm oversimplifying, there's a lot going on in this letter, but the whole letter is doing this, Paul is leaning over to Timothy and saying, okay, the flame of your passion and zeal to teach clearly about Jesus and to be willing to suffer real persecution, writing from death row, right? You've got to speak clearly about Jesus. You've got to be unashamed of the gospel, and you've got to be not so cowardly that you're afraid to suffer. So, how do you speak clearly about Jesus, unashamed, and face face persecution and suffering? And Paul starts by saying, listen, remember that… Faith runs in your family on your mom's side, but also remember, I'm your dad here. I, I, you're my child. I'm your father. And so, Timothy, imitate me. And you'll see that later in the letter. Imitate the kind of faith that the Lord has given me. Follow my example as I lean forward toward the prize. And so, the, Paul comes alongside to increase uh, that faith. You want to pick up on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I love verse five. Uh, I'll read it again. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. I mean, I just found this to be a challenging verse, even a moving verse, multiple times moving by this because he uses that word at the beginning, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Uh, It it was first in the the grandmother, Lois, and then the mother, Eunice, and now it's in Timothy, a sincere faith, a genuine faith. I think uh, different people said it. the faith, it it was just impacting every area of their life. They they had genuine saving faith, and it, it starts with the grandmother on down, but the challenge is for us as parents or grandparents in the room or future parents in the room, I would say... Are our children seeing that our faith is genuine? Are they seeing that we have genuine saving faith? Do, do they see it? Because you can't fake your children out. You, you cannot. Your, your children will know, or your grandchildren will know, what it is, is that is most important to you. And I think, Mark, you've used this illustration about the, the dad who maybe is taking his kids to church and uh, maybe he reads the Bible with them, but he never really shows much emotion about the Bible or the things of God, he never gets that excited at church. But then, On Saturday afternoons in the fall, the Georgia game is on, and he is hooping and hollering on the couch. He's super excited when they win, and when they lose, he's down and out. Well, what is he telling to his children? He's showing them, this is what is most valuable to me. And so your kids are going to pick up on that. So what I would say is I would plead with us, our kids need to see that our faith is genuine. Do they see that we have a genuine love for the Savior. I mean, do, do we get excited and, when we talk to our children about the wonder of God's grace and saving us? Do we ever get excited about the blood of Jesus? Telling. I mean, do we show them that this is real? We love the Word of God. Are we showing that to our children? And I, I remember I did a confession on Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. And Jerry Ediger texted me after I did that. And he texted me something about how when Ben was really young, he was reading from a children's Bible the story of Abraham and Isaac. So Ben was probably just a few years old, and Jerry is reading this account, Abraham and Isaac, and ultimately is leading to the true and better Isaac, the Lord Jesus, and Jerry got tears were swelling in his eyes, and young Ben sees Jerry crying, and he says, Dad, why are you crying? Well, the reason why he's crying is because Jerry loves the Savior. He has a genuine love for the Savior, and here's Ben, a couple of years old, and he can see my dad loves the Lord. He knows this is what's most valuable to him. So I would just say, I hope the kids in our church will grow up, and they will say, yes, my parents are sinners. But my parents love Jesus. I mean, I hope that's the testimony of of all the children. And I would just add this. If you grew up in a home with with a mom who loved the Savior, with a dad who loved the Savior, with a grandparent who loved the Savior, or with both parents who loved the Savior, then we have received, John Stott said, a blessing
0: beyond price. And I just know that to be true. The older I get, what a blessing to have grown up with that. Let me just jump off of that. If you don't have children, do not think you are left out of this application. Paul didn't have children either and he's the dad, okay? So everybody, if you are a man in the room, you are called to grow up to be a spiritual father to all the younger men in the church. And if you are a single woman in the room, you are called right now to be a mother to the younger women and the children in this this church. And so the, the way in which... Fatherhood and motherhood cannot be erased from us. Whether we become biologically, physically, fathers and mothers is irrelevant. Paul is considering himself a father in the church. And if you are a man or a woman, you are called to be a father or a mother to younger people. And so always be thinking that there is a lot of Timothys running around, right? And they need discipling. They need conversation. They need someone interested in their life. They need someone asking them questions about their day. They need someone who's leaning in when they're talking rather than glazing over when they're talking. They need people who are interested, who care, who are actually there and present some way. And listen, we all have different schedules. We all have different levels of availability. We all feel like we really don't have any availability, right? That's the way we feel right now. But we, we need to try to carve out areas and spaces where we can build these relationships and pour into younger people at our church, and older people as well, to be poured in by uh, older fathers and mothers. Remember, Paul will say things like that in, in First Timothy about how he'll say, uh, you know, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a Father, younger men, treat them as brothers in the church, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So, Paul's saying, think of this as a massive family, and we get to all play some small part, a vital part, in in, in the local uh, family of of Christ. And so, let's think about these applications broadly.
2: Well, uh, yeah, something coming out of that um, in uh, verse 5 when he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith… Um, you know, I've mentioned this many times before. It's something worth mentioning again. Uh, be verbal uh, with your affirmations of how you see God working, and your fellow Christians in your church, your your church family. Um, it goes so far to um, to to point out when you see God doing something in somebody. Like, you know, just a hunger for the word. It's like, man, I can see you're hungry for the word. You know, that's encouraging to me, making making me want to read the word more. It's like you know, I appreciate your freedom of just talking about Christ or, or something like that. Or, you know, I saw you serving this person, you know, and I just want to say, man, that was, that was you know, I know God was pleased by that. Um, and, you know, that was awesome that you did it. Take, take the initiative, take, look for opportunities to affirm how God is working in other believers. God uses that to bring encouragement um, in so many ways. Because, you know, again, if you're like me, um, I can be my own worst critic um, and I tend to have more doubt about me than other people would. Um, and so it does me good and I know I'm probably not the only one. It'll do you good to hear from other people. Hey, I see God working in you because sometimes we need to hear that from other people. Um, you know, the illustration of, you know, we've heard this too of, of a fire in an ember. You know, when you get close to other hot embers, what does it do? It helps you get hotter as well. And so it's like, we need to hear from one another, you know, that, that you see God working in me, that I see God working in you. And I mean, Paul, I mean, it just it just comes out of Paul. Um, you know, again, verse five, you know, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It's like, Timothy, I know you're genuine. I know you're, like like Scott was saying, I know you're a believer. I know you're going to be in heaven with me. I know, like, we, we share in this Christianity thing together. There's no doubt um, in my mind. And so just make sure you, you look for opportunities and you're intentional in pointing out, Uh, the reality of people's faith and how you see God working in them.
0: Okay, uh, we're going to move into verses 6 through 8, which uh, John Piper argues. He thinks this is just almost a central thesis statement of the whole book, and I think think he's correct here. So 6 through 8 is central to the entire book, not just this chapter. Let me read that for us. 2 Timothy 1, 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We'll continue on that. That's mid-sentence. But… Let me just read it one more time because this is so important to the whole letter. Verse 6 again. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So what does this mean?
1: Maybe you can
2: explain. (laughs) I can get to some application but you can explain too <laughs> well okay off. the word there uh, in verse six fan into flame literally means to to rekindle you think of a fire that's about to go out and so you stir it up you get it you know you get it back to where where the the coals are glowing again and you you put more wood on it so that it you know it, the, the wood catches fire and then the whole thing just gets hotter and it keeps going that's what he's talking about fan into flame, rekindle the gift of God and I think the understanding it that way, um, there's an implication here, is God has gifted each one of us in a number of different ways um, to serve his people and, um, and, 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 and all of that. And we, if we don't put it into practice, it can grow weak, um, it, it, can, it can grow um, dim. Um, and so it's something like, whatever your spiritual gift or gifts are, whether it's serving or teaching or encouragement, um, or mercy or whatever, be active in practicing your spiritual gifts, um, whatever they may be, because if you don't, they they will grow weak and, and you will you will stop using it as much. You will you will not you will get slothful. You'll get sluggish in it. It won't be as easy to do the, the more you put it off. So whatever your gifting is, use it. Um, and I think the reason why this matters is Timothy, obviously, as you were saying, is more timid. And so when you're more timid in this situation, you know, well, if it's gonna cause controversy, I'm just gonna back off a little. Uh, I'm not, I'm not gonna speak the truth that needs to be spoken. I'm not going to, to push a point that needs to be pushed uh, with somebody. And Paul's like, listen, you have a gift, Timothy, and, and, and don't let it flame out. Keep it hot. Rekindle it if you're scared. Rekindle it if you're timid. So that you use this precious gift God has given you.
0: And just, I, I've, I said this maybe a few months or a month ago in the sermons, but th- there is just a really strong temptation in the teaching part to, if you know a subject is going to come up and you know perhaps a non Christian might hear it and be offended by it or a Christian might hear it and be offended, there is a constant temptation to want to try to minimize or to kind of put it to the side or find wording to make it a little softer than the Scripture actually says because there's this fear of, well, if this unbeliever doesn't like it and they turn away, then I'm going to lose an evangelistic opportunity and I feel like that's an ultimate failure. And ultimately what ends up happening there is you weaken the entire church because what ends up happening is the members don't get fed, right? Can we just, oh my goodness. Is this not a problem in American Christianity, there is, there, there is this sort of ungodly dominance of what the non-Christian will think and that that ends up controlling what is said from the pulpit. And what you do is you water down the message to not offend unbelievers, thinking you're doing something evangelistically good. And what you end up doing in the long run is you don't feed Christians the actual meat of the word. And so over time, your church becomes a bunch of Christians who don't have a lot of muscle. They don't have a lot of they don't have a lot of strength. They don't have a lot of discernment. They don't really know how to deal with the cultural hot button issues at all because they've never been taught on them from the pulpit. And so the Christian you'll end up in a small group where half the Christians Christians, Christians think super ungodly things, and others kind of think solid things, and no one quite knows what to believe, and we have to be careful of idolizing what the world thinks about what we say, as if that should have control over what we say, when what we should be concerned about, number one, is telling the truth God told us to tell, which is His Word, unvarnished, unedited, what God said is what we must speak, and then we need to feed it to God's people. And God's true people will always respond ultimately positively to God's true Word, taught correctly, and God's people will grow, and their faith will strengthen, their muscle will grow, and over time, they will become more discerning, more godly, more holy, more humble, more happy in their faith, and better, guess what, evangelists in their life. That's the, that's the ironic part of this whole thing, is that in the long run, this is going to do nothing but help Christians grow, flourish, and be strengthened in their evangelism. Uh, we, we don't want to weaken the church by not saying what God says, but that's what Paul is, is after, is say the truth, even if there's an initial negative response. Well, and he also
2: says, verse seven, God gave us a spirit, not of fear. Um, one of the when we can tell when we are falling under the influence of the spirit of the age, and as Mark was saying, you know, we want to please the world uh, when we're afraid to speak the truth. And what Paul is telling Timothy, listen, um, by the Holy Spirit, you have a spirit that's not should not be marked by fear. And if we care more about what the world says than what God says, if we care more about the world's approval than God's approval, then guess what? We are being controlled by a spirit of fear. Um, I mean, we've mentioned this already, but it's something that I think is worth mentioning again. The Southern Baptist Convention, what was one of the phrases that kept coming out at the convention recently? Well, the world is watching us. The world is watching us. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It matters what God thinks. But the problem is, so many people, well, we don't want to look mean. We don't want to look this. We want the world to look at us and say, wow, you look so nice and pretty and handsome and look at how great you are. They want the, we want the world's approval. And that's the problem. But if we understand God has not given us a spirit of fear, meaning we don't fear men, we fear God. Don't, you know, what did Jesus say? Don't fear him who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If we're fearing God, then yeah, we'll do our best to be kind and gracious and clear and not antagonistic as much as possible. But if the world gets upset, the world gets upset. We're more concerned with truth than we are with the world's approval because the world needs the truth. Sometimes the thing people need the most is the thing they want the least. So we got to give it to them no matter what. No, that's true.
1: Yeah, I'm just going back to what Greg had said earlier about sort of the application point uh, in terms of the gift. I mean, y'all are hitting it exactly what... Paul's telling Timothy right here to be bold, but I think there's a special application from this command to Timothy, certainly, which y'all are getting out, but the principle applies to all Christians, because every Christian has received ministry gifts, and the same spirit says R. Kent Hughes, and John Stott said, all God's gifts, natural and spiritual, need to be developed and used. Our Lord's parables of the talents illustrate clearly the duty of service, the reward of faithfulness, and the danger of sloth. So we want to be using our gifts. When the thing is, what is, our, what is the gift that God has given to me? Well, sometimes we may know that. We may have an ability. We may know we have an ability. We have desire to use it. And it just comes naturally. But other times, we don't know what gift we have. And I don't want to embarrass Grant Crane, but I'm just going to mention Grant, uh, who's sitting over here, uh, that he, when he became a Christian, it was a wonderful time. That's over four years ago, I think now, where Hannah, Grant, and Jose became Christians all within a few months. But those of us who were around Grant began to realize that this, this guy's got a, got a gift to communicate clearly and concisely and powerfully the Word of God. He could teach, and he would tell stories, and he would remember the stories, and he would apply this truth. So we're, we're seeing this giftedness. Well, we, we approach, some of us, I think, went to Grant and just said, Grant, now you, you've got this gift. Well, Grant didn't even know he had the gift, and then when we told him, he didn't believe us. He didn't believe that he had the gift. So it took multiple people over a long period of time to finally convince Grant. Now he's finally convinced. It took a long time. And he's got this gift. But so people may not realize they have a gift, and as Dad would say, our gifts are not primarily for us, our gifts are for other people. We will benefit from our gifts, but if we're not using our gifts, we're robbing the body. We're, we're robbing the body. So I would say if you see people with giftedness, we need to be looking for evidences of grace. And Jerry Edgar does this as well as anybody look for evidences of grace and the people of our church, and then when you see it pointed it out to them, say, God has given you the gift of service. Like, I remember in here talking to Jerry one time, and Seth Blevins was here, new at our church, and he was up picking up chairs, and Jerry just turned to me in mid-conversation. He said, look at Seth. He doesn't have to think about it. He's just serving. He's just serving. He saw this, and I tried to tell Seth later, but if we see giftedness in people, we want to tell them. This is evidence of grace in your life, and you need to fan that into play. You need to use, use that gift, so we should be on the lookout and help people see their gifts.
0: Yes, and just this isn't really from the text, so I'm just footnoting a thought here. Just uh, There are also wonderful examples of where you, maybe you say, I don't really think I have the gift of blank. You may, maybe you don't think you have a particular gift, like maybe it is service, you don't go, that's maybe not my go-to thing, service, but yet so many of us still, uh, you see fruit of people even serving when it's not their favorite thing. You know, it it's maybe isn't your your so-called gift as in what you really love to do, but still serving the church even when there's a need and you still stepping forward and doing that. I see that all the time where… Zach, I could say things that would embarrass you right now, but uh, I mean, Zach's done this many different times where I don't think Zach would say, this is my absolute like favorite thing in the world to do, but Zach has so often stepped forward and done acts of service around our church where uh, he's got all kinds of gifts, but he has oftentimes served in areas that may not be his favorite thing to do, and he does it willingly. So just, I see that all the time, and that, that is such an encouragement when, when people do that. With Timothy here, if you'll flip to First Timothy, back a couple pages, uh, I want to mention this moment. I think it's mentioned three times about this laying on of hands, this prophetic moment. Paul's there. There's a bunch of elders present. Paul mentions it three times. First Timothy 1, he mentions it the first time here, I think, in verse 18. And we don't know everything that happened in this situation. We don't have the details beyond this. So 1 Timothy 1.18, but Paul refers to it three times, so it clearly mattered a lot to Paul. First 1 Timothy 1.18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he goes on. But there you say, okay, there was this time where there was a a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. God's word was spoken fresh over Timothy. It was confirming or giving some kind of gift to Timothy, probably involving ministry gifting. And Paul laid his hands on him. If you look at chapter 4, they'll mention it again. Let me just read the whole paragraph starting in verse 11. 1 Timothy 4 is a great chapter. 411, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. Yourself and the teaching persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Just a quick note he's not saying that Timothy actually atones for the sins of his church members, there. Obviously, he's saying, as long as you persevere in in a good conscience, a godly life, and good doctrine, then the people who follow you will follow you to heaven. They, They will not follow you. To destruction like some. But, But if we go back there, verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. It's impossible to know this, but it's a guess, educated guess. You remember which city Paul was stoned nearly to death in? Starts with an L. Lystra. Okay, remember that? Timothy is mentioned as a disciple in Lystra, in Acts, okay? So, Timothy was there. Paul will mention this. Timothy would have probably been there when Paul was stoned. He probably, was, probably saw this happen. And Timothy saw Paul's sufferings in these cities. Paul will mention that later. And Timothy's converted. The guess is… Timothy was probably, had those elders lay hands on them from the church in Lystra. I and mean, that's just a guess. There were elders that had just been appointed in the church in Lystra right there at that time, and where does Timothy depart from? He departs from the church in Lystra, so very likely at the initial departing, that's when the elders of the church, these new Christian elders, so they hadn't been Christians for very long, they put their hands on Timothy, Paul puts his hands on Timothy, and the Holy Spirit speaks a prophetic word over Timothy, something about his future gifting and his perhaps about his teaching and courage and those kinds of things. Paul prays over him or speaks over him, and they they commission Timothy, and Paul keeps referring back, I think, to bolster his courage. Timothy… I know you're young, but think about all the old guys who got around you and put their hands on you, including me, and think about how the Holy Spirit spoke with a prophetic word. God is behind you, Timothy. These these men, these elders approve of this. They endorse you in this ministry. I myself put my hands on you. I'm behind you. I'm your dad. I'm also your your leader. My hands are on you. We support you. We we, we know the Lord is with you. Don't neglect the gift. Do you see the argument? It keeps coming up. Don't, there, there is a whole... Uh, elders, an apostle, and the Holy Spirit, all are behind what Timothy is doing here. Paul says, don't lose the gift. Fan that gift into flame. We can turn back to 2 Timothy 1. Uh,
1: okay. I mean, I'll just, let me just read it just a little bit past. Should I read past 8? Okay, yeah. But, okay. Uh, starting verse 8 again, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Again, going back to this idea of of, uh, not being ashamed, uh, in terms of verse 8, I think it was, uh, John Stott said, we are all more sensitive to public opinion than we like to admit and tend to bow down too readily before it's pressure like reeds shaken by the wind. I just thought that's so true. We're all prone to this. I mean, like you mentioned, why do some of these guys are saying about God whispers about sin? Why are they doing it? Well, they're bowing down uh, to the world. So we, we have this tendency in us, So we need to be encouraged not to be ashamed. But he, Paul is like laying all these things out for him not to be ashamed. And Alistair Begg told this story he was at the airport, and a couple of guys started talking to him. I think it was a father with a son or two sons, and they asked him what he did for a living. And He said, I envy you guys who, have, who don't have to answer like he does. He has to say he's a pastor. And so, immediately, he said he put him at a disadvantage, meaning he, he said they said to him, well, of course you believe in Jesus because you're paid to believe in Jesus. And he was like, no, that's not the case. And he was trying to build back up, and he was presenting the gospel to him. But he said the whole time while he was talking to this guy and his sons, he kept hearing Paul's words to Timothy, do not be ashamed, do not be ashamed, do not be ashamed. So he, he, was kept, bringing, he, he kept hearing that because he knows he's prone to lighten the gospel. But then he, he told them, I guess, the guy was neglecting Christianity, but he quoted, I think, G.K. Chesterton about, well, if you've never looked into it, I don't remember the quote, but he gave this quote. Like, have you ever examined Christianity? The guy said, no. So Beg reached in his uh, backpack and he pulled out the gospel of John and he gave it to him. And he thanked him for it, and then he sent him off, and he just begged, was praying for him as, as he took off, and he, he's praying for him daily. He said, this was years ago, about this guy going, going off. But the, the, the purpose is that we, we even beg, is feeling like he, he wants to be ashamed of the gospel. We, we need to be reminded, I think, regularly, that not to be ashamed. But then he has these powerful verses in verse 9 and 10. I can just read again who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And this is like, Piper said, this is like putting steel in Timothy. to, to steel. He's reminding them of, of gospel truth, like he's reminding them of the wonder of our salvation and the nature of the gospel. This is, I mean, this is encouragement not to be ashamed. Like Jesus has defeated death. He's abolished death. He, he saved you. And I think of uh, death is, is the, the big predicament of the world. Said this one pastor I listened to, Eric Alexander, he said, death is the predicament of the, uh, the human predicament, for death is the wages of sin. He said, however you look at it, physical death is the wages of sin, spiritual death is the wages of sin, and then uh, the ultimate wages of sin is eternal death. But he says the glorious thing is that the grace of God in Christ Jesus has done is to destroy death. So even there, it's like Jesus has defeated death. We should be encouraged to, to proclaim this message. He's brought light and imparted the light through the gospel, so we should be about the business of proclaiming the gospel.
0: Yeah, I, I love the fact that so Paul's trying to encourage Timothy in his fear and his timidity. And so what does Paul do? He, he goes to eternity past. I, just one more time. Let me read verses 8 and 9 one more time. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, what's going to motivate us to be unashamed of the gospel and to suffer well? Verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, we'll be talking about that calling in Sunday School Sunday, the the effectual call, not because of our works. He doesn't say, but because of your faith, Timothy, which, you know, it would make sense. Not because of works, but because of faith. But well, then that would make it all rest on Timothy, wouldn't it? Which would put him back in the fear, fear position of like, well, what if I mess up? But God goes, no, no, no. But Paul says, no, no, no. God saved you and called you to a holy calling not because of your works, Timothy, but because of God's purpose and grace which He gave you in Christ before the ages began. So Paul goes predestination, doctrine of election to help a cowardly pastor not be afraid. You know, I, I have loved you with an everlasting love, said the Lord. I've heard someone say the best argument that God's love for you will never end is that for the elect, it never began. God's love for you is never going to end because his love for you never began. In eternity past, he chose you in Christ. He gave you his calling. He gave you his, in, according to his own purpose, he gave you the grace of salvation in Christ before you existed in the world. God chose you to be saved. Before you were alive, before the world existed, before time existed, before angels had been created, God chose you by name to be saved in Christ. That word purpose there shows up repeatedly in Paul, like in Romans 8, same word, Romans 8, 28. We know the verse. We know, we know that for, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who have been called according to His purpose, same language is here. Romans 9 uses the same kind of language there. That God chose Jacob over Esau according to the purpose of his election. Or Ephesians 1, uh, according to the purpose of election, same thing. So here, what does Paul do? Paul goes to predestination and says, listen, if you want courage, if you want steel in your spine, if you want to be able to be forthright with the gospel and unashamed and unafraid, Know that God, apart from anything you've ever done, apart from works, God chose you in Christ for salvation, and He's given you grace and eternity, that will give you steel in your spine because what can anyone do to you? It's like Romans 8 again. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus died. He's been raised. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding. Who can possibly ruin this plan? Who can ultimately be against you? The answer is no one. God has safely put you within Christ. And so, he goes all the way back to that doctrine in order to help us with our our, our courage situation.
2: Um, I'm going to sum that up just a, a little bit. Hopefully, this is helpful. Like, sometimes uh, when we come to something like this, like, I, I really try to, like, find, like, a catchy phrase or something, and it, it try to have a ring to it. And so maybe, maybe this will be helpful. But what God planned in eternity, Christ accomplished in history, so that we in the present might have hope because of the gospel. I mean, you can unpack that. What God planned in eternity, Christ accomplished in history, so that we now in the present might have hope through the gospel, um, and again, it's just packing that, that in, that God had a plan before time that actually came about in time, uh, which he, every, every single detail of his plan came about just the way he planned it. In um, no way did God have to go to a, you know, a, a plan B with Jesus and be like, well, I thought Jesus was gonna do this, but somehow, nope, now we gotta do this. Nothing of what Christ did while he was on this earth failed in any way to accomplish what had been planned. And that's what Paul says in verse 10, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And then, you know, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So how do we encounter God's eternal plan that Christ accomplished in history? The gospel, I mean, it's so amazing like how our lives connect with what God has planned and what Christ has done. It all comes together in the message of the gospel, which has to be preached, which has to be verbally spoken, because that's what Paul says in verse 11, for which I was appointed, what? A preacher, an apostle, and teacher. So like the gospel has to be verbally shared. Like, you know, was it the, the very badly attributed quote to St. Francis of Assisi? Um, you know, preach the, preach the gospel always, you use words if necessary. Like, number one, just on the face of it, that is a patently unbiblical statement. Um, you know, Paul was not killed because he believed in Jesus. He was killed because he wouldn't stop preaching Jesus. Okay, there's a big difference there. Um, but also St. Francis of Assisi, if you know anything about him, he wouldn't have agreed with that statement. He would have had a big problem with it because he was a preacher. Um, And so he believed in in speaking truth. But all that we're looking at, like, and you know, that's why we're such a word centered people. Like we're, we're not about trying to foster emotions. We're not about trying to put on a, a show and all of that because God reveals himself, reveals his power, reveals his purpose, reveals salvation, reveals everything we need in a book. And so we read a book and we study a book, but If we know Him and we have eyes to see, it's not just a book. It's glory. It's beauty. It's power. It's life because God's there. Anyway. That's good.
0: um, We just got a couple minutes left, Scott.
1: uh, Just one one quick thing from from John Stott. I read this years ago. I've never sort of forgotten it uh, about death. He said, uh, physical death is no longer the grim ogre it once seemed to us. But for Christian believers, death is simply falling asleep in Christ. It is, in fact, a positive gain. It is the gateway to being with Christ, which is far better. But then he said this, which... Now, every time I see like R.I.P., rest in peace, I always think of this quote. He said, the proper epitaph to write for a Christian believer is not a dismal and uncertain petition, R.I.P., rest in peace, but a joyful and certain C.A.D., Christ abolished death. I mean, they're just stamped in me, Christ abolished death. What wonderful news that is.
0: That's fantastic. So, let's wrap up here. These last couple of uh, verses here, look again at uh, verses 9 through 12. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life, same word from verse 1, promise of life, who uh, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, which is why I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So, as Paul again looks at the gospel, what does he see? He sees fundamentally Jesus' defeat of death and bringing life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul could have summarized the gospel in a hundred ways. He picks those factors because he himself is facing mortality. He's facing his death, and so he talks about Christ who defeated death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Greg, would you pray for us? Yeah.
2: Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these verses that we have been able to study. Um, wow, there's, there's so much here, uh, Lord, so much more we could even camp out on. But God, we are thankful, Lord, for the faith that is in this room. God, I know I can say, as, as Paul said to Timothy, Lord, I can see and testify of the sincere faith of so many in this room. Um, and Lord, it rejoices my heart, that we share this hope in this Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, who's, who you planned to send from before the beginning of everything, uh, who came into this, this world and accomplished everything necessary for us to be saved, to be made right with you. Uh, Lord, who, who because he's done that, you give us strength through the Holy Spirit. You give us courage to not be afraid. Um, Lord, help us. In light of all of this, to to be that spiritual father, that spiritual mother, that spiritual brother or sister to one another that we all need. Uh, Lord, may we be quick to point out evidences of grace um, and and pray earnestly for one another, Lord, that we would persevere, that we would be unashamed of Christ, uh, God, and so much more. Uh, But Lord, we thank you that uh, we were able to take this time to consider what we did. And God, we pray that you would, by the Spirit, multiply this word and this truth in our lives, God, that we would it would bear fruit in us and through us uh, to your glory and the furtherance of the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you all again. Is there any food left? There's still some food left if you want some more, or if you want to take home a box and uh, hopefully see you guys next week.